Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel according to Mark chapter 2. Some time ago I was asked to preach, and if I could preach, you know, related sermons or a series. And so I wrote two sermons on the Gospel of Mark. Maybe I could say even three, but this is the first. And um, in all honesty, I'll probably preach the second one, September 3rd. September 3rd. So that's either an invitation or a warning, but um, this is the first one, and then and then comes that one. And Mark has always been a favorite gospel of mine. If uh, in my pre-confession class, I used to uh, demand that all students read a gospel in one sitting. They weren't intended to be read one sentence at a time. And uh, everyone always picked Mark. I don't know why. Maybe because it was the shortest. Um, but Mark is also my favorite gospel, if I'm allowed to say that. Um, I actually once heard it recited uh, in Stratford Theater. It was amazing to hear this man recite the gospel of Mark beginning to end. Uh, and and it is, it is it's beauty. There's a richness about Mark. Um, it's abrupt. It's extremely good. Um, the word pictures that Mark paints are amazing. Uh, one question that people always ask is, who is Mark? Well, we're not 100% sure who Mark was, but Mark was not a disciple. You know that. So where did he get his stuff from? Uh, a lot of theologians over many centuries have come to the conclusion that it's probably the gospel according to Peter through the hand of Mark. Um, there's reasons for that. Number one reason is that the Gospel of Mark is exceedingly hard on Peter. And uh, that might be a reflection of how Peter saw his own journey in his ministry. Um, Mark, though, um, in the middle of, well, not the middle of the book, but sort of in that episode when Jesus is in the garden, there's this really strange little sentence. And you, you can't help but wonder, what is this doing here? When it says they all fled, okay, I get that. And then there was a young man who fled, and his cloak got hooked on a thorn, and he ran away naked. Personally, I believe that's Mark's way of telling us, the author's way of telling us, I was there. I may have only been a boy, but I was there. I think that, that it, it sort of gives us a sense of comfort, and so when we think through it, um, Mark 2, Jesus has been very busy by the time we get here. Um, he's already had uh, been baptized with the temptation. There's the calling of the first disciples. He's driving out evil spirits. He heals many. There was a man of leprosy. We see Jesus as a man of prayer. We see Jesus healing a paralytic. And then, after his busy, busy ministry, we see him calling his last disciple, his last follower, and that is Levi. And just give you some, this all happens in and around Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum was a one industry town, fishing. Everybody who lived there was either involved in fishing or directly or indirectly. Interestingly enough, it wasn't that big of a place. When I was growing up, I always thought Capernaum, you know, fairly big town. It was for its day, 
but it was probably less than half the size of Athens. Probably only 1,500 people. Well, I went to a high school bigger than that. Um, and that, that's good to know because it helps us to understand what's going on in the mix, behind the scenes, sort of, the things that are not brought out in detail. The Word of God. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many, ta many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Love what comes to mind when you think of Jesus and the twelve. You think of Jesus sitting in the group, the twelve surrounding him, listening to him teach. Or perhaps you think of Jesus and the twelve on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Or perhaps on a boat in a storm-vexed sea. Maybe together at the Lord's Supper. What do you know about the disciples? I've been at this for a few years, and I can tell you I know precious little about them. Some of them I know nothing about except their names. It's a much harder question. There's a lot we don't know. And it's interesting because in the book of Revelation, they are called the 12 pillars of the kingdom. In other words, we're all standing on their shoulders. The disciple is the person who follows the teacher. And actually, technically, Jesus had many disciples. But the gospel tells us that the followers of Jesus included men and women. And then we learn that Jesus chose among that large group 12 individuals, 12 men, who were to become his apostles. They were sort of interns. But we all know what we, who we mean when I say Jesus and the Twelve. But once again, there's actually precious little we know about them. And it could be very confusing, you see, because they don't always carry the same name. Have you ever noticed that? Peter was also known as Simon and also Cephas. Of course, Levi was known as Matthew. Bartholomew was also called Nathaniel. Thomas identified himself as Didymus. Thaddeus was also known as Judas, son of James. Simon the Canaanite was also identified as Simon the Zealot. We often, not 100% sure, we think of the 12 as fishermen, but that was not the case. Clearly, Simon the Zealot was a man who was very politically motivated, very anti-Roman, Judas Iscariot, his name means from Carioth. Carioth was nowhere near the water. 
and Levi was a tax collector. And then there are Peter and Andrew. They were sons of Jonah, who were brothers. They were brothers. So were James and John, the son of Zebedee. They were also brothers. Matthew and the other James is said that they both had the father named Alphaeus. Does that mean that they were also brothers? We don't know. Thomas is called Didymus the twin, yet his twin seems unknown to us. And just to let you know how confusing this can all be, if you go into many a commentary, you will discover long and beautiful arguments that will explain to you how James and John were actually the first cousins of Jesus. And then it all happened in Capernaum, in this major metropolis. No, I'm being sarcastic, of course. There's a good chance these men who were all about the same age, they probably all knew each other. Or at least of each other. As I read through the gospel, I get this feeling, well, they probably all went to the same school together. And that makes sense because Jewish boys were trained in the synagogue, and since there was only one synagogue in Capernaum, and if they were close to the same age, they were all classmates. It's on the shoulders of these men that the kingdom of Jesus was built. Each one of the twelve was called to be a disciple, apostle of Jesus. The Gospels do tell us something about calling, including and especially this morning the calling of Lima. As we read a little bit ago, one day Jesus was walking through town, probably close to the center of town because the Romans would have ensured that the tax collector's booth was easily accessible to everybody. Because everybody in town knew Levi. Because everybody had to pay taxes. And Jesus stopped and he looked into the booth and he looked at Levi in the eye and he said, follow me. And Levi did this back. A short, simple, very beautiful story. It's vivid. You can almost see it. And it's very easy just to keep reading. But really, the reader of the Gospel of Mark should stop here. And we really should ponder a little bit about what just happened. You see, because this is unexpected. This is a very unexpected, and actually I will tell you, it is extremely scandalous. I'm sure that this calling, this little episode, this one sentence, Jesus said, Levi, son of Alphaeus, follow me, and he did, made the disciples might maybe even angry. See the hostility, I can feel it. You see, as far as we know, the other disciples were all of the Jewish faith. They all took their faith seriously. They all were nurtured in the teachings of faith, keeping the commandments of Moses. They made the appropriate sacrifices. They attended synagogue worship. Their Jewish faith was woven into the very daily fabric of their lives. 
Simon the Zealot must have hoped and worked for an end of the Roman occupation so that the glory of Israel and its faith could be restored. Andrew seems to have taken it all very seriously too because he had been a disciple of John the Baptist. That meant he was looking for the Messiah. But Levi was a completely different man. Oh yes, he grew up in the same town. And he spoke the same language. And probably got the same education at the same time as the others. And he lived in the same town. But he was a tax collector. Let's be honest, we get it. Even 2,000 years later, when we say tax collector, an image comes to mind. Be honest. Not a positive one. And I, I apologize to anyone who's working for CRA. But the idea of someone feeling entitled to take from us our hard-earned cash does not bring us happiness. In Jesus' time, the Romans, who were very shrewd occupiers, used Jewish people to collect their taxes. So, to say it briefly, Levi was working for the enemy occupying force. He was a collaborator. And so he was probably despised by his fellow Jews. I don't know of any collaborators. But I did learn something about collaborators as I was growing up. A long time ago, in 1968, I was vacationing in the Netherlands with my parents. And as happens to every child, you have to go with your parents wherever they go. And one day I was tagging along with my mom and her sister as they went shopping. They're walking down the street and my aunt said, hey, there's a sale over there. Let's go take a look. And my mother stopped. She looked at her sister and said, don't even think about it. And my aunt looked at her with this puzzled sort of look and said, come on, Sam, let it go. That was almost 25 years ago. And besides, this isn't the man, this is his son. And my mother, who was a very loving and forgiving and accepting person, would have none of it. This was a line she wouldn't cross. You see, collaborators are seen as the enemy. My father was a World War II veteran. He was a Dutch soldier when the Netherlands fell. And he said it was hard after the war to learn to forgive the Nazi soldiers. He said, but they were people under orders. They had no choice. Collaborators did it all with Collaborators are seen as the enemy. James Edwards, in his commentary on this piece, um, explains that in Jesus' day, even the great Jewish theologian, Hillel, I don't know if you've heard that name, he was the one who Paul said, I am a student of Hillel. The great Jewish theologian 
taught Jewish people that you can lie to tax collectors with immunity. It is not a sin. Mark's gospel put tax collector in a special category. Did you, get, did you catch that? Sinners and tax collectors. As if sinners can be forgiven, but tax collectors can. It's a whole special category. Mark, the writer Mark, wants us to see a man who was just like the others, but not like the others at all. A man who was hated, despised. Jesus was walking through town and he saw a Levi, son of Alphaeus. And he looked at him across the booth, he looked at him in the eye and he said, follow me. And he did. It's very important to note that Mark doesn't, you know, that's it, that's the story. There are things that Jesus didn't say. There is no talk of repent and follow me. There's no talk of change your life and follow me. There's no talk of any of that. There's nothing about the law of God. There are only two words. Follow me. Believe I did. And then Jesus went to Levi's house for a feast. And that tells us something too. Clearly, Levi was a man of means. He had a house of his own. And in that house was a dining room of his own where he could host a banquet for 12 disciples plus Jesus plus all sorts of other sinners and tax collectors. And he could do this all on a couple of hours notice. This is a man who had wealth. This is a man who had means and he had clothes. I'm sure that he didn't go running to the market to buy everything. He probably had servants to do. Maybe slaves. Clearly, a man of means. The other tax collector in the Bible is also a man of means. Remember that? Zacchaeus? Right? He had so much money. It boggles your brain how he was going to pay everybody back. While the disciples may have been uncomfortable and maybe even confused by what Jesus did, they went along with it. They accepted it. They might have argued at first. They were obedient to Jesus. But the Pharisees, those people who knew the law, right? Not only did they know the law, they were very particular about keeping the law. And do you know how many laws there are in the Old Testament? There's ten big ones. And then there would be about 603 other ones. And the Pharisees were there to make sure that you kept every one of them. This is like you can do anything you want on Sunday as long as you can do it in a white shirt, black pants, and shiny shoes. That was my mom. We grew up with whole sorts of rules like that too. They weren't written down anywhere, but we had them all. So what's going on here? What's going on in the calling of men? Grace. This is amazing grace. Grace that 
undeserved gift of Jesus, of God, that goes out to you and I and to tax collectors. Grace is the love of God so freely given. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were all about people conforming to the will of God. 613 commandments, and they knew all of them. And they were forever trying to check out to see, you know, does this fit, does this not fit, you know, what is covered, what is not covered. Must have been very tired. Even John the Baptist, his whole ministry was repent and be baptized for the kingdom of God is at hand. But Jesus, his word is calling Mark is blunt and he's short. There's also a huge urgency about that word. We need to stop and think about this grace. Jesus' call was an act of love. And that act of love kept on going out to all sinners and tax collectors at that dinner party. Jesus wasn't interested in their personal history. Jesus was interested in the person that was seated in front of him and beside him. Jesus wanted to redeem him. Not restore him, but redeem him. That brings me to this. This is my favorite sprinkler. It, it, it's, an, it's an odd kind of thing. I know, if I was 30 years younger, I'd have a clicker at this point. But I barely know how to use my phone. So here, this is an old show and tell, and you can take it home and you can, you can do some homework. I put this on my lawn. I've had one of these sprinklers exactly like this, around one, ever since I can remember. And you put it out on the lawn, sun's behind you and you put it on the lawn and you put it down and then you spend the next three minutes is it getting everywhere? You know, it, it, you know, is that, right? Then later in the day you put it out and the sun's in front of you. And what do you see? 10,000 drops of water shooting high and broad and wide. And every drop has a rainbow in it. Don't let anyone take the rainbow away from you because that is a sign of God's faithfulness. And every one of those drops, as the sun streams through it, has a rainbow in it. That's how grace works. We worry about whether everything is covered. God says, now look this way. That's how my grace works. Jesus said that to the disciples that day too. My grace is sufficient. But he would say to Paul, your life is hard. Your life isn't easy. You've got a lot of stuff to deal with. But my grace, my grace will carry you through. If you're a little bit older, you know the truth of those words. Maybe in situations that you've never even talked about. But you knew you were carried. And if you're a little bit younger, then I tell you, you can hold on to that grace because it will always be there. It's amazing. 
so undeserved and yet so it's a gift to us all. Levi may have been a wretch. We sing that word, but do we ever think about what that word means? A wretch. Even the word you say, say it, sound, the sound of the word is not pleasant. Levi may have been a wretch, but Matthew was saved by the amazing grace of Jesus' love. As Jesus said, he did not come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. He did not come for those who consider themselves good enough. He came for those who fell on their knees and said, Lord, have mercy on a sinner like me. Or fell on their knees and said, Lord, I believe, help me, my unbelief. Knowing this makes us think about how we perceive and how we judge one another. It also makes us think about how we perceive ourselves. When Jesus' voice speaks into your heart and says, follow me. All that needs to happen will happen once you start following. Levi needed to learn that too. By being with Jesus and walking with the others, he needed to learn and to live the kingdom of God. Follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I will lead you home. Amen.